Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 20. Today we will be reading Book 6, Chapters 5-7 through in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Okay, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we'll be covering today. Today's actually relatively straightforward in terms of its content, but I think one good notion to have in mind is the notion of authority, because St. Augustine is wrestling with the authority of his Manichaean teachers, which we'll hear about more later on, and he's wrestling with the authority of the church, its pastors, and specifically of the sacred scriptures. So, you know, he, in reading sacred scripture for the first time, found it unsavory, a little bit crass, rude even in its language by comparison to some of the more exalted rhetorical or oratorical texts that he had consumed. But now he's coming to grapple with its authority, and in doing so, he's coming to appreciate, uh, yeah, the unsearchable wisdom of the sacred page. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 5. As I was led, however, from this state to prefer Catholic doctrine, I felt the Church was unassuming and honest in requiring that what was believed was not something to be demonstrated, whether it was something that could be demonstrated only to some or could not at all be demonstrated, whereas the Manichaeans made a mockery of our credulity by promising us certain knowledge then imposing on us so many fanciful and absurd things to be believed because they could not be demonstrated. Then you, O Lord, with your most tender and merciful hand, gradually touched and gathered together my heart, convincing me of the fact that I believed in countless things that I had not seen, nor was I present when they took place, so many things in world history, so many accounts concerning places and cities that I had not seen, and so many tales concerning friends and physicians and countless stories about other men. If we did not believe all these sorts of things, we could do nothing at all in this life, and lastly, how sure and unshaken was my belief in the identity of my parents, which I could only know by hearsay. You persuaded me of all this, and I saw that those who believed in your scriptures, which you established with such great authority among the nations, were not the ones who should be censured, but rather those who did not believe them. And so too did I see that I should not give ear at all to those who asked me, how do you know that those scriptures were imparted to mankind by the spirit of the one true and most true God? For above all others was this to be believed, since no contentious word of blasphemous questioning from all the hosts of the self-contradictory writings of the philosophers could wrest from me my belief that you are whatsoever you are, 
something which I did not know yet, and that the government of human things belongs to you. This I believed sometimes more strongly, sometimes less so. Yet I always believed that you exist and care for us. However, I remained ignorant concerning both what I was to think about your substance and what way led back to you. Since then, we were too weak to discover the truth by mere reason alone, thus standing in need of the authority of sacred scripture. I now had begun to believe that you would never have given such great authority to those writings in all lands if you had not willed that they be means for believing in you and seeking you. Now that I had heard satisfactory explanations for various scriptural passages that had seemed strange and offensive to my ears, I turned now to consider the depths of the mysteries contained therein, and Scripture's authority appeared all the more venerable and deserving of religious belief, for although its words lay open for all to read, it reserved the majesty of its mysteries within its deeper meaning, stooping down to the level of all with its plain words and humble style, yet calling for intense reflection by those who are not light of heart. Thus, it receives all into its open bosom while leading some few toward you along narrow passages, though many more than it would have if it did not stand upon such lofty heights of authority, nor drew multitudes into its bosom by its holy lowliness. I thought of these things, and you were with me. I sighed, and you heard me. I wavered, and you guided me. I wandered upon the world's broad paths, and you did not forsake me. 6. I coveted honors, wealth, and marriage, and you laughed at me. Through such desires, I experienced most bitter crosses, while you were all the more gracious by preventing anything that was not you to grow sweet with me. Behold my heart, O Lord, who willed that I should recall all this and confess unto you. Let my soul cling to you now that you have freed it from all these snares of death. How wretched it was, and you inflamed the pain of the wound so that, by forsaking all other things, it might turn back to you who are above all and the only source of all things, which would be nothing without you. Thus would it be converted and healed. How miserable was I at that time, and how did you deal with me so as to make me feel my misery on that day when I was preparing to recite a speech praising the emperor, a speech that was to be filled with many lies, which would be applauded by those who knew that I lied. There I was, with a heart that was panting with these anxieties and boiling with feverishness at these consuming thoughts. Then, passing through one of the streets of Milan, I observed a poor beggar who, I suppose, had a full belly and was merrily joking. Sighing, I spoke to my friends about the many sorrows caused by our deranged follies, for we exerted such efforts like those in which I then was toiling, dragging along the burden of my own wretchedness at the goading of desire, all the while increasing it by thus dragging it along, yet also hoping to achieve a state of joy like that which this beggar already achieved, while we may perhaps never manage to do so. Indeed, what he had obtained by begging for a few pennies, I myself was plodding along to find by many toilsome and winding paths, and it was nothing more than the joy of transitory happiness. For he clearly did not have true joy, but as I exerted myself in all my ambition, I was seeking a happiness that was even much less true. And he was surely joyful, whereas I was anxious. He had not a care in the world, whereas I was filled with fear. Yet if anyone were to ask me if I would prefer to be cheerful or fearful, I would have told him cheerful. And again, if he asked whether I would be like that man or like myself, I would have chosen myself, though I was worn down with cares and fears. But how wrong would my judgment have been, for it was indeed true. For I should not prefer myself to him because I was more learned than he, given that I felt no joy in that, seeking only to please men by means of it, not to instruct them, but merely to please. Thus you broke my bones under the rod of your discipline. 
Depart from my soul, you who say to her, It makes a difference where a man finds his joy. That beggar found it in drunkenness, but you in glory. But what glory, Lord? That which is not found in you. For even as his joy was not true, so too that glory. And it overthrew my soul all the more. With the passing of the night, his drunkenness would pass. But I slept and rose anew with mine. And night and day, for as many days as you know, O Lord, I would lie down and rise with it. But it does make a difference where a man finds his joy. Yes, I know this, and the joy of a faithful hope lies incomparably far beyond such vanity. Yes, and so was he beyond me, for he was truly happier, not only because he was dripping with mirth while I stood there with gut-wrenching cares, but moreover, by wishing men well, he got his wine, whereas I sought after empty and swelling praise by means of lies. I spoke of these things to my friends and often noted to them how things fared with me, and I found that it went ill with me, and I grieved and doubled that very ill. But if any prosperity smiled upon me, I was loath to grasp at it, for it would slip away between my fingers before I could grasp it. 7. Thus, as we friends live together, we bemoan these things. However, I primarily and most intimately spoke about it with Olypius and Nebridius. Olypius was born in the same town as I, of parents who were important figures, though he was younger than I. He had studied under me both when I first lectured in Tagast and then at Carthage, and he loved me much because I seemed kind and learned to him. And I loved him as well for his great innate virtue, which was quite significant for someone his age. However, the whirlpool of habits inculcated by life in Carthage, where idle spectacles are closely followed, had drawn him into the madness of the circus. But while he was miserably tossed about in it and I was teaching rhetoric there in my public school, he did not come to me for teaching on account of some enmity that had risen between his father and me. I had then discovered how much he devotedly attended the circus and was deeply grieved that he seemed likely, nay indeed had, thrown away so great and promising a character. But I had no means of advising or somehow constraining him, whether by the kindness of a friend or the authority of a teacher, for I judged that he held me in the same esteem as did his father. Yet this was not so, and not heeding what his father thought of me, he began to greet me and at times come to my lecture room to hear a bit and then head on his way. However, I had forgotten that I should do something to prevent him from ruining such a good endowment through blind and headlong desire for such worthless entertainments. But you, O Lord, who guide the course of all that you have created, had not forgotten him who was to be numbered among your children as a priest and dispenser of your sacrament. And in order that his amendment might be clearly attributed to you, you brought it about through me without my being aware of it. For one day, while I was sitting in my regular place with my students in front of me, he entered, greeted me, sat down, and applied his mind to the topic I was then teaching. By chance, as I was explaining the passage I had in hand, an example from the circus races came to mind as a way to explain my point more pleasantly and plainly, seasoned with biting mockery of those who found themselves enthralled with such madness. God, you know that I then had no thought of curing Olypius of that infection. But he, for his own part, took it wholly to himself, and thought I said it merely for his sake. And while another man would have used this as an occasion to take offense at my words, that sound-minded youth took it as a ground for being offended with himself and for loving me more fervently. For as you said long ago and put into your scripture, quote, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. End quote. See Proverbs 9, 8. Yet it was not I who rebuked him, but rather you, who make use of all things, whether knowing or not, in accord with the order that you know, a just order, 
on that day made my heart and tongue into burning coals to inflame and thereby cure his promising but languishing mind. Let him who does not consider your mercies, which I confess to you from the depths of my soul, be silent and not speak in praise of you. Indeed, after he heard those words, he burst forth from that profound pit into which he had so willingly cast himself, there to be blinded by its wretched pastimes. And he shook his mind with strong self-command, so that all the filth from his days at the circus flew off him, and never again did he go there. Thereupon he hounded his unwilling father, asking to be my student, and his father gave way and consented. Thus, now coming to hear me once again, Olypius got tied up in the same superstition as I, and loved the Manichaean show of continence, which he believed was true and sincere. But it was a senseless and seductive continence, ensnaring precious souls who could not yet reach the depths of virtue, but were readily deceived by the mere surface-level reflections of a shadowy and counterfeit virtue. Okay, so in this section from which we've just read, St. Augustine begins with this little meditation on the difference between things that can and cannot be demonstrated. So you've probably heard of the difference between reason on the one hand and faith or reason aided by faith. There are certain things that we can know just by the light of human reason, and there are certain things which go beyond the light of human reason, and so we, we can't know them by the light of human reason, an example of which would be the most blessed trinity or the incarnation. And so faith is always going to involve us in these deep, profound, and unsearchable mysteries, called mysterious not because they're obscure or dark, but because they're so luminous and radiant. And so, you know, when it comes to teaching or preaching the faith, we're going to find ourselves often in the position of asserting things or just simply setting things forward because we can't prove them. You know, we might give arguments as to why it makes sense or why people who say it doesn't make sense are in fact wrong, but we're going to assert. But whenever you assert something, you're effectively making a claim of authority and authority can always be abused. All right, so in this setting, he's trying to make sense of the authority of sacred scripture, but he's comparing it to the abuse of authority that he has encountered in Manichaeanism because people say all kinds of wild things and get away with it because they make the claim that it, that it can't be proved or it's not subject to proof. So Father Jacob Bertrand, in engaging with the church and her authority, uh, you know, how do we sort out some of these various things? Yeah, there's, I think when we talk about this, we, we should make two different categories of conversation so one within the church amongst believers and then one that not totally divorced but one with those who don't believe saint thomas aquinas offers a great caution in sort of trying to prove or argue the faith to not begin with or especially with those who don't believe with things that are revealed um as father gregory mentioned a couple of those you know the trinity by way of example things that god teaches us directly about himself because there aren't proof you know, we can't apply the scientific method to the existence of the Trinity. It, it kind of lends itself to being mocked or ridiculed or dismissed more easily. But within a community of believers who trust in some way that God reveals and teaches, we can rely on that content or deposit of revelation, you know, from our sacred tradition and from the sacred scriptures. So I think Father Gregory put it you know, you put it well in that what we believe by faith or the things that are mysterious, it's not that they can't be known in some respect or that we can't have access to them, but it's a question of how do we know them? You know, as you were saying, whether it's based on an authority, based on revelation or scientific proof, you know, that's where it kind of rubs a bit. Yeah, and, and St. Augustine will give a kind of defense here of faith claims because he says, you know, there are plenty of things that we take on faith and by faith 
in the kind of initial passages where he describes it. He means a kind of ordinary faith. Uh, so like I can't observe all of the data. And so I have to rely upon the experts to recount the data and I have to trust them or else I'll always have to verify everything in order to advance anywhere, you know, in whatever science. And so he says, you know, there's this kind of place for ordinary faith in human discourse. It would make sense that we have place for extraordinary faith, which is to say beyond a natural faith, a kind of supernatural faith, because the most important things are things which are invisible, things that we can't verify and that no one can verify this side of the grave. And so we have to rely upon the testimony of God if we're going to have access to those things. So like, you know, God and the things of heaven. So yeah, he's willing to use kind of natural analogies. And that's often what we're doing when we uh, give apologetic arguments or practice apologetics. You may have heard it described in both ways. So yeah, just a, an interesting start there to this particular passage. But then there's the super charming passage right in the middle of what we just read, where he passes by this beggar and he compares himself to the beggar. And he finds that the beggar, on account of the fact that he has a full belly and probably had a good bit of wine to drink, seems very happy. And then he's experiencing his own anxiety because he's about to give an oration and he's, he's just nervous. And he says, I'm unhappy. And here I am with all my education, with all my social advancement, with all my political wheelings and dealings. And I've arrived at a point where I'm just riddled with anxiety and unhappy. And this guy hasn't endeavored anything. And yet he's happy. So who has the better life? And he's inclined on the one hand to say this other man has the better life. But still, I wouldn't change my place with his because... And it seems like he's trying to say, I'm, I'm endeavoring something big and bold and beautiful with my life that he's not endeavoring with his. So there's a real fundamental difference, but it's a difference which concerns the substance of happiness, because it seems like in order to be truly happy, we have to endeavor something big and bold and beautiful, but we have to have some real experience of it. And I think Augustine is coming to grips with his frustration in this moment. So yeah, when, when kind of sorting through the discourse on happiness, how do we orient that conversation? I think that it's it's a question always of what is constituting or what are we attempting to um, use or pursue to fulfill ourselves with, you know, what is the source of our happiness? And we can see, you know, St. Augustine's point about endeavoring on something big, challenging, these sort of things, you know, where there's a struggle. We see this, we do this in our own lives, you know, that we might achieve an end. You know, you can do that in very virtuous ways that we suffer. We think of the athlete, think of somebody working, think of, you know, parents raising children. I don't, I don't have children, but I can't imagine that's always like a joyous occasion, but ultimately it's a source of happiness. So it's, it's always, I think a question of, of what is the good that we're after or the not so good that we're after. And, and, and St. Augustine's reflection on the beggar, I think is less of a question of, of happiness in itself. You know, he's pursuing happiness, I think, and the beggar too, but like, what is it that constitutes his happiness? And you know, he's hitting a wall here in, in, in looking at his life and what he's pursuing at this time. Yeah, I think, you know, one way we can say it is we're only going to be as happy as the goods with which we engage make us happy. You know, so like there are certain certain goods that just kind of top out after a while. And, and we can make a kind of divide here between goods of the body and goods of the soul. Goods of the body are great. They're super great. You know, they're super useful. They're super pleasant. You might even get to a certain point where you can have a spiritual experience when enjoying a good meal or having a rare glass of whatever fine spirit you like. It doesn't matter too terribly much, right? But if we're going to experience the full riches of our human life, we're going to have to endeavor something, you know, bigger and bolder and yet more beautiful. And that means, you know, trying to live virtuously, engaging with what is true and good and noble and et cetera. And I think that, you know, St. Augustine is coming to grips with the fact that the limitations of, you know, his approach 
are beginning to yeah kind of reap the whirlwind. And so, um, yeah, in our case, we're just going to have to recognize that there's a difference between corporeal, you know, or bodily and spiritual pursuits. So, you know, bodily pursuits, they feel real nice at the beginning, but they tend to decrease in their intensity and in their enjoyment. Whereas spiritual goods, they're super forbidding at the outset because, you know, if you've tried to pray a holy hour for the first time, you're thinking, I'm going to die after like three minutes. And yet, as we continue to engage with them, they prove yet more and more enjoyable. Not that we always have tons of positive emotions, but we have an increasing sense of our fit, an increasing sense that it was for precisely this that we've come into the world. So I think that's a good challenge for us to, um, to kind of weigh the quality of our happiness against the quality of the goods with which we're engaging. Yeah, okay, so then final thing is we have the beginning of his uh, conversations with Olypius, and Olypius you know, is, a, is younger than him, and it seems is interested in instruction from him. And he's concerned about Olypius because he likes going to the circuses, and the circuses are vain, and they're a source of curiositas, a kind of unbridled desire to, to look and to engage in spectacle. And yet, uh, already, we see the workings of the monastic community, of which Olypius will be a part, and the episcopacy of northern Africa, of which both men, you know, will be leading lights. So, yeah, let's maybe just, in these final minutes, a little bit about the providence of God and this relationship and how this too fits in. Yeah, friendship and relationships, all of it. I mean, we see these people. We've talked about St. Monica. We've talked about St. Ambrose. Augustine has talked about other friendships in his life, you know, when he mourned the loss of his friend. We can see the importance of relationships in St. Augustine's life and not just in St. Augustine's, you know, life, but the importance of relationships in general. And it's interesting here that in most of St. Augustine's life, there have been people who have been leading him to Christ, you know, his mother, St. Ambrose, others in their varied ways. But now it's it's not that the tables are turned because, you know, of course, St. Augustine is still going to Christ, but here he begins to go to Christ with somebody else. So I think there's in the sort of beginnings of this and the drawing each other closer to Christ and Augustine drawing Olypius from the sort of, you know, the kind of banal kind of whatever engagements and enjoyments that he partakes in. It's kind of like, okay, here are the pieces coming together where that's where that's working. And I don't want to be like cheesy, but maybe I'll be cheesy, but it's it's like heartwarming. You know, it's, it's I don't know, it makes me kind of happy to see this sort of happening. It's kind of beautiful. Yeah. And it's one of those instances of God writing straight with crooked lines because Olypius's father is suspicious, uh, even disapproving of St. Augustine and so unwilling to let Olypius take courses with him. Eventually, he's won over by Olypius's beggings and protestations. And, you know, when he does fall in with St. Augustine, you know, it's good in some senses. It saves him, you know, some of the curiosity of the circuses, but also it seems like he's he's falling in stride with St. Augustine and his Manichaean heresy. But ultimately, you know, God writing straight with crooked lines, it's going to redound to both of their sanctification uh, because we'll, we'll hear more about it in the pages that follow, but they will both be drawn to Christ and to his church in strong and, and excellent fashion. So again, that's our desire for you in reading this book together, that by the bonds of fellowship created, you know, in this, in this exercise that we might go to God with greater zeal, with greater fervor, uh, and that we can support each other in prayer and that we can support each other, you know, along the way in the various means that lie at our disposal, whether that be the Facebook group or, or prayer and fasting. So with that, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>